0: Hello lovely listeners, welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Crime, a true crime podcast hosted by me, myself and I, Lisa Marie and Ray. Hello to anyone tuning in for the first time, it's amazing to have you here. Each week I sit down with a cup of coffee and I talk about a true crime story. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, then I highly suggest hitting that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on. You can also get in touch on Facebook or Instagram at Coffee and Crime Podcast with your thoughts and feelings about any episodes, recommendations for future episodes, or just anything true crime related. Well, hello for the second time this week. Oof, two episodes in one week. Who am I? <laughs> um, thank you everyone who's reached out, just sending, you know, well wishes and good vibes to ease some of the frustrations and and stresses of last week with technology crapping out on me not feeling the greatest having a bit of a blocked nose which i still have and i do apologize cuz i still sound gross hopefully it's going to go away soon but thank you all for the lovely messages that you guys have sent you guys are amazing i love you all so much um it's quite funny i mean at the moment My Instagram feed and the other, you know, podcast creators and accounts that I follow on Instagram. Most of you guys are over in the States and you're all posting, like, you're over the heat and you're waiting for autumn. You guys are in autumn now, fall, the spooky season, and you're in your sweaters and pumpkin spiced lattes. Like, it's just funny because. I'm now in spring. I can't wait for the heat to come back because I'm so sick of being cold. (laughs) Now, don't get me wrong. I love Halloween and spooky season is upon us. But it's quite funny because it's like not quite the same for spring. You don't really associate spring with serial killers and horror movies. (laughs) But that is the way of the world. It is springtime for us here so hopefully we do start getting warmer but I love the aesthetic of fall and autumn just as much as you guys I miss wearing sweaters but at the same time please give me a bit more heat to get rid of this bloody cold so with that being said I'm going to finish rambling that's my little pre-episode ramble today's episode is a bit of a doozy it's a bit all over the shop as coffee and crime style <laughs> um but it is a unsolved mystery in a cold case in northern europe that possibly could be getting solved soon after 50 odd years so that's very exciting um again with it being a northern europe country there are names and places not in english I will do my absolute best. It doesn't help having a cold trying to pronounce some of these words, so I do apologize for the butchering that will probably happen today. Um, Please bear with me and just reach out if I have horribly mispronounced anything so I can correct myself in the future. But with that being said, let us crack into it. Warning, the following episode contains adult language discussion on suicide, and a description of a corpse that listeners may find disturbing. The podcast is intended for listeners 16 years and above. Listener discretion is advised. So our story today takes place in a city called Bergen in Norway, It's a city in the Vestland County on the west coast and is the second largest city of Norway with a population of roughly 286,930 people. Bergen is the international centre for aquaculture, the offshore petroleum industry and subsea technology. Bergen Port is Norway's busiest port in terms of both freight and passengers With over 300 cruise ships docking in a year with nearly half a million passengers. Why have I not heard of this place? That's huge. There's heaps of tourists going to Bergen. Why? What is there to see and do there? Well, if you are up for a scenic adventure rather than an adrenaline rush, then it seems to be the place to go. So there's lots of day trips, hiking trails, river cruises and boat tours but probably the main attraction of betagan is the mountain range that surrounds the city so betagan is often referred to as the city between seven mountains however uh it's unclear as to why they're called mountains because They look more like hill areas, I suppose. Um, Don't get me wrong, they look absolutely breathtaking. The the scenic photographs that you can see of the city, if you haven't been there, look absolutely beautiful. But just to put it into perspective, Mount Everest is 8,848 meters high. Mount Kilimanjaro is 5,895 meters high. Mount Rupehu is 2,797 meters high. Whereas the seven mountains surrounding Batigan range from only 230 meters to 630 meters high. So, same, same, but different. um, They're like the little cousins of uh, mountains. (laughs) Also, the number seven is quite loose because a lot of the hill areas, a lot of the mountains are actually part of the same structure. They're just kind of like spread out. Yeah, I don't know, but they're called, they're called the seven mountains. Now, Batagon is known as a lot of things So, the city between the Seven Mountains, the unofficial capital of the Western Norway region, the black metal capital of Norway, due to its role in early Norwegian black metal, and also the street art capital of Norway. So, the mystery artist Banksy is quoted with taking a lot of inspiration from his visits to Bedigan in some of his artwork. So... Now we have a little insight as to where we are, let's talk about why we're here. On the 29th of November 1970, a very cold morning, a university professor and his two young daughters were hiking in the foothills of Ulraiken, which is the highest of the seven mountains. They were in an area that's generally known as Ice Dahlen, which translates to the Ice Valley. I say it's generally known as that because the locals have their own nickname for this place, and that is Dudsdalen, which translates to the Death Valley. (laughs) Oh, shivers down the spine. (laughs) It's known as Dudsdalen, the Death Valley, due to the area's history of suicides back in the Middle Ages, but also because there seems to be a few hiking accidents that happen in that area, both explained and unexplained hiking accidents. Ooh, <laughs> mysterious. Oh, I love that kind of stuff. I really do. And it's quite apt for our story today. So anyway, the three of them, they're in this area, and one of the daughters noted that there was an unusual burning smell in the air, and she followed the scent until she just came across an absolutely terrifying scene. Between large rocks in a steep wooded area off the track lay the body of a woman burned beyond recognition. So the girl ran back to her father to let him know, absolutely terrified out of her mind. I, I couldn't find how old the girl was, but honestly I think that would traumatise anyone of any age. So the three of them quickly made their way back into town to alert the local police. The burned body of the woman was found lying flat on her back with her arms pulled up towards her chest. It's known as the boxer pose, which is often associated with burn victims as it's a very natural reaction to bring your hands up to protect your chest and face in case of a fire. It's where all the good stuff is, got to protect it. Now the woman's legs, arms, face and hair were completely charred, her back was considerably less burnt, but her buttocks and upper thigh region were undamaged. Also her abdomen area was the least burnt on her front side, which suggested to police that at the beginning of the fire that took place, she was sitting down, slightly bent forward, which would have shielded that part of her body. But then as she was found lying on her back, it was as if she had thrown herself back from whatever fire happened. Now, even though there was the burning smell in the air, the body and the surrounding areas were cold and the police could not tell how long she had been there for. So her body was taken to the Gates Institute at Halkland Hospital for an autopsy to be completed because the police needed answers as to what could have possibly happened here at this scene and she was given the placeholder name of Aistalskvinen, or the Eistal Woman. The pathologist conducting the autopsy, Johann Christopher Gietzen, reported that the Aistal Woman's cause of death was from carbon monoxide inhalation, and this was deducted from the soot and ash residue found in her lungs. Now this means she had been alive, breathing in smoke when she was on fire which is just an absolutely horrific and painful way to die. There was evidence of bruising around the woman's neck, but it is undetermined as to how it got there, but very likely from her fall, from landing between the rocks. Her head was somewhat lodged between them, so possibly could have been from that. Now, the contents of the woman's stomach showed 50 to 70 tablets of phenomal, Phenomal is a medication that is widely used to treat epilepsy and seizures, but also could be used for anxiety or someone with drug withdrawal. Now, the side effects of Phenomal are decreased level of consciousness and a reduced effort to breathe. So it sounds pretty cut and dry. She popped a load of pills and then set herself on fire, right? Well, the toxicology report... Shows that her bloodstream only had four milligrams of phenomyl absorbed. Four milligrams is not a lethal dosage. So the 50 to 70 tablets in her stomach had not been absorbed, so therefore played no part in her death. Now that's very important to remember. So the scene where the ice doll woman was found, it is reported that there were no signs of a campfire or any type of fire pit anywhere near her. So the big question is, how on earth did this woman end up on fire? Right? It's it's what's on everyone's mind. Now, the police did find some personal items scattered and placed around the body. Now, I say placed because one of the forensic investigators, Tormod Byrne's thought that the scene... Quote, looked like there had been some kind of ceremony, end quote. So the woman's steel wristwatch, a pair of earrings, and a ring were not on the body, but somewhat neatly laid on a rock next to her, as if she had taken them off and placed them there for whatever reason. There were a pair of rubber boots placed next to her as well. There were burnt up remains of a bag, a woolen sweater, placed on a nearby rock, two plastic bottles that were partially melted, an empty bottle of Saint-Holvard liqueur, a burnt-up umbrella, burnt-up paper, and a matchbox from biet Is. Interesting little tidbit that will come up later. biet Is is Europe's first ever sex shop. So keep that right at the back of your noggin. Now, underneath the body was a fur hat that was reported to smell of petrol. However, only a drop of petrol was retrieved from the ground underneath her. A very minuscule amount. Also found near the body was the burnt remains of crackers or bread. And due to there being bottles or at least something that seemed to be a drink it suggested that the woman was having a small break or a little picnic or whatever and this is where the whole ceremony thing kind of goes out the window maybe she was just taking her accessories off to have lunch but it's weird who takes out earrings to eat lunch see it's all a bit like well what maybe maybe not mm. mystery 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 investigators found that the fur hat had its label cut out now thinking this is quite odd they then found that all the clothing with or near the woman had all their labels or production tags cut out of them they weren't ripped off they weren't burnt up they were deliberately cut out so there was just nothing at the scene to indicate who this woman was with no labels or production tags in any of the items investigators didn't know where to look to where they had been purchased. The body itself showed no evidence of tattoos, scars, birthmarks, or any identifying features. So investigators were just baffled. They had They had nothing to go on. So they ruled the death of likely suicide due to the phenomal in her stomach. But they were told that the phenomal in her stomach played no part in her death but they still ruled it a likely suicide because of that. It's just not adding up. Nothing adds up in this. But then clues started appearing. So a few days later, the staff at the Bedigan Railway Station alerted police about two suitcases that had been left unclaimed in the luggage department, and the police thought they would check it out just in case this had anything to do with their mysterious woman. And honestly, it's a very good thing they did this. Inside the suitcases were a teaspoon, maps of the seven mountains surrounding Bedigan, timetables, a plastic bag, a pair of non-prescription lens glasses, a pair of sunglasses, cosmetics and toiletries, a comb and a hairbrush, a tube of prescription eczema cream. There was a pair of shoes, some clothing items, a wig, and money in a variety of currencies, so there was German and Norwegian banknotes, and Belgian, Swiss, and British coins. Also found in one of the suitcases, in the lining, hidden away, was a postcard and a notepad that had an assortment of letters and numbers arranged in a somewhat code-like way. So with all this stuff, surely something is going to be able to identify who this woman was. Right? Right? Well, the items in the suitcase gave investigators an idea of the type of woman that she might have been. So the teaspoon was from Vienna. The shoes were real Italian leather. There was a pair of snakeskin gloves and a trench coat with a real fox fur collar. And her toiletries was a herbal shampoo and an expensive bottle of perfume. So this was a lady of style, great taste, and probably someone with a bit of money to her name. However, everything had been wiped clean of fingerprints. The comb and the hairbrush had not a single hair left on it. The tube of eczema cream should have had a prescription label, with the patient's name and the doctor's name, but had been obviously taken off. The cosmetics had most of their brands scratched off, and once again, all the production tags and labels from the clothing items were cut. How bizarre. Very, very, very bizarre. The only thing investigators could get from the suitcase was a single fingerprint from the sunglasses. And luckily, it matched a partial fingerprint they got from the woman. So this is how they linked the suitcases to her. Now, they could only get a partial print because her fingertips had been sanded down. She had no fingerprints. Like... Investigators were only getting more and more confused and had way more questions than answers. I've got way more questions than answers, like, and I'm not even, like, on the case. (laughs) It just seemed as if this woman did not want to be identified whatsoever. Now, police still thought this fit with the suicide theory, so an unknown woman just wanted to take her own life for whatever reason and remain unknown. But still... Investigations went on and then they got their first break. The plastic bag found in the suitcase was from Oskar Rupwitz Footwear Store in Stavanger, a city five hours south of Bergen. So investigators reached out to the shoe shop and spoke with Rolf Rutwitz, who was the owner's son, and they just wanted to know if the rubber boots found next to the body was a pair that was sold at the shop. And that is when Rolf said that he remembers selling a pair of these boots to, quote, a very well-dressed, nice-looking woman with dark hair, end quote. He said that she spoke English, but with an accent. And he remembers this woman in particular because she, quote, took a long time, end quote, to choose the boots. And he noticed that she had a very strong garlic smell about her. Since Rolf's description somewhat matched the pathologist's description of the corpse, investigators then had some composite sketches drawn up and distributed throughout the media all over Norway, as well as internationally by the way of Interpol, appealing to the public for anyone who may have seen a woman between the ages of 25 to 40, about 5 foot 4 in height with long brownish black hair, a small round face, brown eyes and small ears. Police also noted that she was wearing a blue and white print ribbon in her hair at the time of death. When the description of the woman was released, a 26-year-old male in Bedigan came forward to say that he was hiking around the trails on the Floyen mountain on the 23rd, 24th of November, about five or so days before the body was found. Now, Floyen is about an hour hike away from Ulriken, where her body was found. Now, when the witness was hiking, he said he passed a woman who matched the description and he noticed her because she seemed very out of place. She was well dressed, more like for a day shopping in town rather than hiking around a mountain. And he said not long after passing her, he also saw two men dressed in black coats. Again, not attire for hiking. But they were going in the same direction as the woman. The witness said by the time that he put two and two together and worried for the woman's safety, he turned around to try and find them, but he couldn't find the woman or the two men anywhere. Now, according to reports, when this man came forward to share his his testimony his statement he was told by police to quote forget about it the case will never be solved end quote so his name nor his testimony were ever recorded at that time so we only know about this witness now because he came forward again in 2005 to a local newspaper about what he knew and what the police told him which is very strange Staff from the Saints 5th Hotel in Stavanger also came forward to investigators saying that a Fenella launch checked into their hotel from the 9th to the 18th of November. This Fenella launch matched the description of the Aisdell woman. Also the dates 9th to the 18th coincided with the date of purchase of the rubber boots from Oscar Roidvet's footwear store. So this was a huge break for the Istar Women's investigation team. Finally, a possible identity for this woman. But then, more witness reports came in from different hotels all over Norway. All reporting of a woman matching the description was checking into their hotels, but all of them had different names. So to check into hotels, most of them required guests to show a passport or some form of identification, but they also had to fill in a check-in form. So investigators gathered all the forms from the different hotels and they wanted to compare the accuracy of their sighting. So comparing handwriting from the forms, um, comparing reports of the behavior that was noticed by staff, And all in all, investigators were able to link nine different hotels stretching across Norway to this woman. Now, the notepad that was found in her suitcase that was thought to be like some sort of code, it actually ended up being more of like a a diary of some sort. So the numbers coincided with dates and the letters were potential locations that she may have possibly been in. So With the coded note, coded loosely, coded note, the hotel sightings and a few other reported sightings from train stations, uh, boat rides, ferries, more like traveling around. With all those reports coming in, a timeline of events began to form. Now, some of these are unconfirmed or speculative, while other parts are a bit more accurate, but I'm going to run through it now and make clear which parts are uncertain and which parts are more certain. So this is all in the year of 1970. Um, I am apologizing well in advance for my butchering of these names and places. I do apologize. I have gone through pronunciations, but i uh, it's a lot. It's a lot of places. It's a lot of names. So here we go. On the 11th to the 16th of March, she was possibly in London, England. On the 17th to the 19th of March, she was possibly in Geneva in Switzerland. On the 21st to the 24th of March, a Genevieve Lancia checked into the Viking Hotel in Oslo back in Norway. Then the 24th of March, she takes an hour flight from Oslo to Stavanger, then a five and a half hour boat ride to Bergen, where she checks into the Hotel Bristol under the name Claudia Telt for one night. On the 25th of March to the 1st of April, she checks into Hotel Scandia, which is also in Bergen still under the name Claudia Telt. Then on the 1st of April she takes the boat back to Stavanger and then has reported sightings in Christiansand, which is three and a half hours away. On the 3rd of April she's possibly in Rome, Italy. And on the 23rd to the 29th of April, she is possibly in Frankfurt in Germany. On the 30th of April to the 14th of May, she's possibly back in Rome, on the fifteenth to the twenty first of May she is possibly in Vienna in Austria. On the twenty second to the thirty first of May, she is possibly in Wolfsburg in Germany. The first to the seventh of June, she's possibly in Nuremberg, also in Germany. On the eighth to the twenty first of June, she's possibly back in Rome. The twenty second to the third of July she's possibly in Paris, France on the 4th to the 16th of July, possibly back in London, then the 18th of July, possibly back in Rome. Now the notepad doesn't record anything for the next three months, but there are reported sightings of her in Hirtshals in Denmark, Hamburg in Germany, Basel in Switzerland, and Stockholm in Sweden. Then on the 3rd of October, she travels six hours from Stockholm back to Oslo, then is seen an hour away in Opdal, and we'll talk about that in a minute. On the 22nd of October, she stays at Hotel Altona in Paris, but her name is not recorded. Then the 23rd to the 29th of October, she checks into Hotel de Calais, also in Paris, and the name is not recorded. Then the 30th of October to the 5th of November, she travels from Paris to Stavanger, then back to Bergen, where she checks into Hotel Neptun under the name Alexia Zerner-Murchis. The 6th to the 9th of November, she travels 9 hours to Trondheim and checks into the Hotel Bristol under the name Vera Harley. Then the 9th to the 18th of November, she travels 6.5 hours to Oslo then another six hours to Stavanger, where she checks into St. Svipton Hotel under the name Fenella Lorch, which just started this whole thing. Then the 18th of November, she travels back to Bergen and checks into Hotel Rosenkrantz under the name Ms. Halfra. On the 19th to the 23rd of November, she checks into Hotel Hordeheimen, also in Berrigan, under the name Elizabeth Halfer, On the 23rd of November, she checks out of Hotel Hordeheimen, paying for her stay in cash. She calls for a taxi and is taken to the train station where she leaves two suitcases in the luggage department. This is the last recorded sighting at the time of the investigation she is found dead five days later on the 29th of November. Now, if we also take the 26-year-old male who claimed to see her on the trails of Floyen, that would mean after leaving the train station, at some point she headed for the direction of the mountains. But honestly, at this point, who knows? I I don't. That was was crazy. Over 100 witnesses were interviewed and they had a range of testimonies and Most of them were similar in saying that the woman was elegant, well-dressed, and spoke English but with an accent, and some witnesses claimed they heard her speak German and some heard her speak Norwegian. Hotel staff said that her behaviour was quite odd. She would often ask to change rooms nearly every day during her longer stays, and she would be seen on terraces or balcony, looking out looking around, being a bit sketchy, being a bit on edge and then sometimes not seen at all during any of her stays. So when she was in Opdal back in October she was seen out to be having dinner with an Italian photographer Giovanni Trimboli. Giovanni was also linked to the postcard that was found in her suitcase. So investigators went to interview him and when they did, Giovanni claimed that the woman he had dinner with said that she was a South African antique dealer that he had met and invited out to dinner. He was a bit of a, bit of a playboy, a bit of a hotshot, so couldn't help himself. She was an attractive woman. He did say that she was very reserved and hardly spoke about herself at all. So he really couldn't offer any help to her actual identity or tell them anything that investigators didn't already know. I couldn't find in any reports of the name that she gave him as this South African antique dealer. Also, when she stayed at Hotel Neptune, a waitress by the name Alhild Rangdis said in her interview that she was mesmerized by this woman because of her confidence and her style. Alvid also remembers serving the woman one night at a dinner and said that she was sitting right next to quote, two German Navy personnel, one of which was an officer, end quote. So with all that information, all the witness reports, all the unanswered questions, still the Bedigan police chief closed the case and ruled it death by likely suicide. The i-style woman was laid to rest on the 5th of February 1971 and she was given a Catholic funeral and this was decided upon based on her use of saint names as her aliases she was buried in a zinc coffin in order to preserve her remains for as long as possible in case any relatives or anyone who actually knew this woman could like came forward it's reported that there was 16 people who went to the funeral and they were mainly police officers and members of the investigation team 45 years later In 2016, the cases reopened and in 2017, her jaw and teeth that were removed at the time of her autopsy and believed to be lost or destroyed were found deep in the cellar at Halkland Hospital where the autopsy was conducted. And now testing could be done on them because of the leap in forensic technology and science in general. So she had a very unique set of teeth. She had 14 fillings and several gold crowns, which was quite unusual for someone between the ages of 25 to 40. Also, this type of dental work was not seen in Norway in 1970 or earlier. So the testing done on teeth told forensic scientists that she was born in 1930 plus or minus four years and that she was either born near Nuremberg, Germany, but moved to France or the France-Germany border as a child. Honestly, forensics is my favorite thing ever. They could tell where she lived by the chemicals on her teeth. Like, what the heck? It's insane. <laughs> Honestly, for that yeah, forensic, I'm obsessed with forensics. There's, it's incredibly fascinating what tests can tell us these days, but that's that's insane. So the only places she could get work on her teeth done, like the way that she did, was either in Central or Southern Europe or in Asia. So it's very likely that it was done in Europe. Also found hidden away at Halkland Hospital were several tissue samples from the woman's organs, including her lungs, heart, adrenal gland and ovaries. Because DNA testing was not around in 1970, they were stored away and forgotten, But not anymore, baby. (laughs) This is awesome. In 2018, the samples were sent off for testing. And while waiting for results, the Norwegian Criminal Investigation Service, known as Kripos, published a podcast series called Death in Ice Valley. And with all the reports, all the testimonies at the time, and all their updating findings, they published it out to the public, blowing the case wide open. They received over 150 tips since releasing the series. Now they have her DNA registered, they are hoping relatives will pop up. I mean, now the fact that we can do DNA tests at home through uh, avenues like Ancestry and, and many, many others, all they can do is wait for a match. But it is very, very exciting that they are so much more closer to finding out who this woman was. So let's talk about some of the theories because there are so many. Honestly, Reddit is probably my new favorite place to go for theories because y'all internet sleuths are wild. All right, you guys are crazy. But the theories that I will be going over, the more widely believed ones. So there is a theory that the i woman was a sex worker based on her traveling around, staying anonymous, sketchy behavior, changing rooms... So there's an idea that she was possibly the victim of a murder by a disgruntled client or that she did commit suicide because of being a sex worker. Perhaps she was over it but couldn't escape the world without killing herself. Now the suicide verdict, even with all the crazy evidence and the crazy traveling and all the questions, can be explained. So on the notepad that they found with all the numbers and letters, at the very bottom was inscribed ML23NMM. Now this is the last entry on the notepad, and the idea of the meaning is, it's only speculated, it's just a theory, but the idea is that ML stands for Mane Lune, Monday morning, 23N, 23rd November, M.M. Memento mori. Remember that you will die. So, Monday morning, 23rd November, remember that you will die. November 23rd, 1970 was indeed a Monday. Which is creepy that it actually fits. So then the idea is that perhaps her travels all around Europe was somewhat of like a farewell tour. She wanted to spend the remainder of whatever money she had left she wanted to go out for dinner with a with a hotshot photographer and and feel a bit fabulous before knowing that she was going to end her life and then on the morning of the 23rd of November she climbs into ice darlin takes her phenomal tablets covers herself in petrol and then lights herself on fire if this is the case this is just an absolutely tragic story which is, It's so sad. Now the most popular theory was that the Dale woman was a spy. So in the 1970s it was the middle of the cold war. And Now while it sounds like a like a cheap throwaway theory like oh yeah she was probably just a spy and you're not going to know anything about spies because they're so well at hiding. It actually does hold some weight. Now someone had to be financing this travel the different aliases, which means she probably had multiple passports, the way that her notepad was written like a code, the removal of tags and anything that could identify her, the fact that her possessions had been meticulously cleaned to remove fingerprints. But the most gripping evidence that she was a spy that backs this claim is that her movements around Norway, especially when she was in Bedigan, seemed to match with, at the time, a top-secret trial of the Penguin Missile. So, was she a messenger spy for someone that was interested in the Penguin Missiles? Was she a spy for Russia? Or was she a spy linked to the Israel's intelligence agency, Mossad? Hmm. It's mm, I mean I am just scratching the surface. I am not going too far down this rabbit hole today in this podcast. I did when I was researching and I was trying to like put it in a way that I could talk about it, but it is honestly so wild. It really is. It's it's a fun little rabbit hole to go down, <laughs> but that is kind of the idea. Now, of course, Beggan police and the investigation team heard this theory that she was a spy, but they were quote, "Shut down by higher powers." end quote. To me, that adds to this theory. Someone wants it hush-hush that there is a spy in Norway, and someone wanted her to be hushed. like who <laughs> is just crazy. One other theory that is kind of brushed over, is that Giovanni Trimboli, the Italian photographer, had something to do with the death of the ice-style woman. He is known to be linked with the Italian mafia and also the man that claimed to see the ice-style woman in the Foyan mountains said that the two men that were following her looked Mediterranean or Southern. So could they possibly be linked with Giovanni and the mafia and wanted to off her for whatever reason? Who, who knows? Who knows? So that, my lovely listeners, is the baffling mystery of the I-Style woman. The traveling, the aliases, the behavior, just every turn in this case was mysterious and leads to one conspiracy theory to another and a rabbit hole of overthinking. Like I said, the theory of being a spy is somewhat exciting and sounds like something that would make a good fiction novel or a movie. But at the end of the day, it could have possibly just been a woman wanting to disappear from the world without a trace. One last thing that I will mention is that there are aspects of the i Woman's case that mirrors a case you may have heard of, and that is the mystery of the Somerton Man in Australia. Now, there are similarities in the way that the clothing labels had been cut out on both the I-Style and the Somerton Man. Both left suitcases at a train station. Both were found with some form of code-like messages, and both have been thought to be spies. Now, I mean, one's in Australia, the other's in Norway. They could possibly have no links at all, but you can't help but think, you know, again, rabbit hole of overthinking. These things are just too coincidental. Now, in case you missed it, the Somerton man has recently been identified after 73 years. So another, like, 30-odd to go for our Icedale woman he has been identified as Carl Charles Webb but I think that might be a story for another time so that is all from me and until next time be safe be good be better and all that cheesy crap and I will catch you all next week for another episode of Coffee and Crime